Good morning and welcome to another episode of Recovery from Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Frame, and today is Monday, March 15th, 2021. Um, so my trifecta of the three most destructive men in American politics today, or at least not today, but their actions reverberate currently the largest or the loudest, uh, Rush Limbaugh, Newt Gingrich, and Mitch McConnell. So Rush in the 90s made being mean, vulgar, and crude normal in American discourse. It was something he made into things people could meme about and laugh about, even though it was very vulgar and very crude and also mean. Uh, He was the first person I know of to go after the daughter of a sitting president. Normally the kids are off limits and uh, Chelsea Clinton was definitely a child living in the White House and he didn't waste any time. Um, And that's what I mean by being mean. It's like, you know, come on, it's a kid. Uh, Newt Gingrich, meanwhile, turned legislation, actual governing, into constant campaign mode and war with the opposition. Prior to him becoming leadership in the House, the opposition party would work with the majority frequently, Uh, usually under the normal discourse of, okay, well, you're too far left or too far right. And if you're willing to move a little more to the middle or a little more in our direction, uh, we can help you pass this law and avoid any, uh, you know, procedural hurdles. Uh, Newt changed all that. It was, you know, hey, we're the majority, our way of the highway, the minority can get the hell out, and also we're constantly campaigning. You know, this is this is really when America turned from, you know, a couple months every few years into, no, we're constantly working on it. I mean, even right now, there are people who are announcing their intention to run again in 2022. And it's like, dude, we just had an election yet. People are already out there. Some people say it's the money. Um, You know, you just, you need to lock up that money early and you need to constantly do that to be there. But I argue Newt turned it into that. He made it so you had to have barrels and barrels of money in order to compete and that you were constantly competing long haul. There was no such thing as winning. Okay. You won the election you didn't have time to breathe. You were immediately worried about the next one. And that has kind of made a huge problem, especially in the House, considering they're reelected every two years. This is now a huge issue. You know, you've got people who are in power, not because they legislate well, but because they fundraise well, because you need to, to survive. So that's how you end up with, you know, your Mitch McConnell's, your John Boehner's, your, you know, Nancy Pelosi's, all those people, they were in safe seats, but most importantly, they could fundraise the crap out of everything. And then you had Mitch McConnell, who has made blatant power grabs acceptable in our republic. You hear the word thrown around, oh, the norms, oh, they're breaking the norms, they're they're breaking the rules. That more or less has always been there, but it's at least been behind closed doors. Uh, Mitch has made no bones about it. Uh, His most famous power grab was denying Merrick Garland even a hearing in the Senate for a 
lawfully, you know, granted judicial seat nominated by President Obama, uh, he, he just changed the rules. You know, he, he made up his own. Uh, it was power for the sake of power. And even now, um, he's clinging to it as best he can in the Senate with filibusters. You know, he has to maintain that while he's in the minority. Of course, if the shoe were on the other foot, based on his previous history, he would have blown the filibuster up forever ago uh, in, an eff- in an effort to just ram through whatever he wanted. I mean, make no mistake, if the Senate were still split 50-50, but Trump had won re-election, there is no way he would have allowed allowed the Democrats to filibuster everything 50-50. He would have blown it up. No ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, he already did when it came to Supreme Court justices because he knew by stopping Merrick Garland that the Democrats were willing to blow it all up to prevent them from stealing that seat from President Obama as it was rightfully his. Uh, So he knew that. So he had no choice but to blow it up in order to get through his nominees, which had a negative effect also and fed into the whole Trumpism thing because normally Supreme Court justices require uh, around two-thirds majority to pass. You know, that's what the filibuster was there for, to make sure that, you know, one side or the other couldn't pass just whoever the hell they felt like. There was supposed to be, okay, this person obviously is good with the party in power, but they also have substantial support from people on the opposite side of the aisle. That was important because it kept the Supreme Court from looking partisan, which currently it does because the last three Supreme Court justices, all nominated by Trump, passed with the slimmest of slim margins, historically the slimmest margins ever, which means there's more wiggle room for the party in power to nominate and put in to power someone who's ideologically very far off the beaten path for American politics. Um, we're not seeing that yet, but it it's kind of, I mean, it's so ridiculous with the, the last three being put in. I mean, Republicans, I get why they're freaked out. Oh my Lord, you know, the, what if something happens with the Supreme Court? It's like, yeah, you guys changed the rules. So now the Democrats really could put a fiery liberal, you know, crazy person on the bench and you guys wouldn't have anything to say about it. So I totally get the power grab. I get the fever swamp, but it's entirely of their own making. They decided to do this. They decided to open the door. And as I've always said, when it comes to power grabs and everything else, it's like, look, yeah, it's fine. You're getting what you want now. But really, honestly, think of the worst person, your nightmare politician on the other side of the aisle, and imagine them with that power. Okay. Uh, I mean, seriously, uh, unfortunately, the left got their worst nightmare, which is Donald Trump. So we know exactly what would have happened. But I don't think that the left, the Democrats are nowhere near electing a Bernie Sanders or even an Elizabeth Warren, I don't think. Uh, they are not beholden to their base the way the Republicans are. So, yeah, it's 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 just completely different. Um, anyway, so those are my top three: Rush, Newt, and Mitch. And Rush is dead, and Newt is irrelevant these days. But Mitch, 
was always the one thinking about the long game. Always. Long game means the judiciary, judges, transforming it, morphing it, knowing elections come and go, but judges are for life. And that is very, very important to somebody thinking about the long game and worrying about their legacy, which is currently what they're doing or what he is worried about. The Intercept's currently reporting that uh, Mitch is flexing every bit of his political power to change the rules in Kentucky. See, in most states, if a Senate seat becomes vacant due to death, resignation, or the rare expulsion, the sitting governor can appoint someone to fill the seat and complete their term. This no legislative hurdles. It's not like uh, Obama nominating somebody and then they have to pass the Senate. The governor can just point at someone and say, you, go. And they're in. They're a senator for the remainder of that term. <clears throat> so hypothetically, if something happened to Mitch right now, he just won re-election. The current Kentucky governor, whom is a Democrat, could appoint anyone to sit there. And that person would sit there basically for six years until the 2026 election. So in effect, the governor could create an incumbent out of thin air. This person would have been in office for five plus years, legislating, speaking on the behalf of Kentuckians, and then, of course, as we all know, incumbents win way more than they should, but they do. It's name recognition. You know that person. You've heard that person speak. And whether you like the person or not doesn't matter. The devil you know, right? So the change to the law that Mitch is seeking would give power to the state legislature, which is still Republican in Kentucky, to choose Mitch's successor. Now, this is important right now because of that 50-50 split I was talking about earlier. The Senate's 50-50 split. If something happens to Mitch right now and a Democratic governor nominates or appoints a Democratic senator, because why would he pick somebody from the other side of the aisle, especially for somebody as blatant power grabber as Mitch McConnell, he would obviously pick a Democrat. And then all of a sudden, Kamala Harris is no longer the important vice president. She is. The Senate is now 51-49. It just a lot of procedural hurdles go away. The Democrats would have that much more control, and more importantly, they would have a foothold in a state that normally they don't have a chance in hell of. They would be able to put a Democrat into the state government for several years. That could change things. You know, a lot of people don't pay attention outside of their little local arena, but if your local senator even if they are a member of the opposing faction, all of a sudden has a megaphone directly into your ear, which is what our local politicians have. I mean, that could change things. And Kentucky's already voted for a Democrat. I mean, they have a Democratic governor. So clearly there is room for if he appoints the correct individual, you know, somebody who's not going to go crazy or isn't too far to the left. But if they appoint a reasonable, responsible, middle-of-the-road Democrat, and that person suddenly now has a voice in Kentucky politics, the state could swing. Or at least that seat could remain Democratic. And that is what the Republicans and Mitch McConnell is worried about. 
So he wants to change it. He wants to give the power to the state legislature instead, which, again, doesn't really think of the long game too much. This is this is a power grab in the way, like I said, be careful what you wish for. You know, imagine your worst case scenario. So the worst case scenario is a few years from now, the roles are going to be reversed. You're going to have a Republican governor and you're going to have a Democratic Senate. It's just a matter of time. This will happen. And then a senator will resign, pass away, get expelled, whatever. And then you're stuck because you just changed the rules again. And the Democrats are going to sit there and be like, well, you know, you guys changed the rules on us. Now, it is a bald-faced power grab. But the states have the power to do stuff like this. Um, some states have chosen to have a quick election instead. Um, and my problem outside of the obvious shattering of another political norm by Mitch McConnell, of all people, is the people's will being usurped in this case. So when Kentucky voters elected Andy Bashir, who's the governor, they did so knowing, like it was known, hey, if Rand Paul or Mitch McConnell pass away, that Andy Bashir would be the one to appoint their successors. This is the same thing you think about when you cast your vote for president, you know, Okay, if a Supreme Court seat becomes vacant, this individual that I am voting for or who will win this election is going to be the one choosing that. That is a consequence of the election. That is the rule. Everyone knows that when they cast their vote. So I'm not, you know, inherently against a state doing it this way, deciding, you know what, it's better if the legislature has a say. I'm totally for it. I am against changing the rules without an informed electorate being given a choice in the matter. I'd argue this change should not be allowed to go into effect until after the next set of elections all the way into 2026. That would cover every state representative, the governor, and both senators to face the voters with these new rules in effect. Because no one ran on this. Okay, uh... I, I usually have no problem. If, if you run on an issue and then you get into office and you start pushing that issue, I'm not going to blame you for trying that. Um, but if you keep quiet, and especially if you keep it a secret and you're like, Shh, don't tell anyone, and then you get into office and you immediately start doing this thing that you didn't even like hint at, then you've got an issue. This was my issue with, uh, I believe it was Paul Walker up in Wisconsin. So he did not run on breaking unions at all. That was not his thing. He didn't run on that. He never campaigned on that. He didn't mention it. Uh, it wasn't brought up in questioning. It never said anything. But as soon as he gets into power, one of the first, very first things he does is, I'm going to bust all the unions in the public sector. I'm going to I'm gonna bust the police unions, the firefighter unions, the teachers unions. They're all going out. I'm destroying them all. And that ended up triggering a recall of the governor. And I thought that was, yes, you know, you didn't run on this. If you had run and say, hey, if you elect me, this is what I'm going to do. And then you do it. I'm going to sit there and be like, hey, you know, voters, you can bitch all you want. The guy told you what he was going to do. Right. You guys, you guys heard this. Um, so in his case, I was completely all for it. And this is another case like that. It's like, look, the representatives in that state's legislature did not run on, hey, if you elect us, we'll change the rules so this governor doesn't have nearly as much power as he used to. You know, that that was not a thing. So no one voted knowing, okay, if I vote this way, this is the consequence of these actions. 
I mean, yeah, sure, they knew, okay, Republicans are going to play games because they always do. But no one knew they're going to change the rules. This is nuts. This is like the Super Bowl happens and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are, are running the table on the Kansas City Chiefs. And then at halftime, they change the rules saying that it's no longer, you're no longer allowed to sack the quarterback. And not only that, only the Tampa Bay Buccaneers can no longer sack the quarterback. Patrick Mahomes is too valuable to the NFL, so we have decided that he is no longer allowed to be sacked. That game changes. The rules change. You didn't game plan for this. And, and most importantly, yeah, that, that rule never came up. Nobody talked about changing the rules at the, at the halftime, you know. But all of a sudden, the rules got changed at halftime. Nobody was aware of this. Nobody planned for this. All of a sudden, the Buccaneers are sitting there going, great, we have to rewrite our entire defensive plan because of this. And, oh, by the way, you still only get your typical 30 minutes for Super Bowl halftime break. You have 30 minutes to go win the championship. And they basically just tied one arm behind your back. Go stop the comeback. That's my problem with this. You know, if, if Kentucky decided we want to do this, and they even put a stipulation in the law, hey, this doesn't count for anybody currently sitting in office. If they added that line, you know, we're going to operate under the current rules until the voters get a say, then I have no problem with it. But they're trying to change the rules because I guarantee you the second this thing passes, Mitch is retiring. He's facing an uprising within his own caucus. Uh, rumors are that uh, the whole second impeachment thing was a message from Rand Paul, who basically went to him and said, "If you vote to impeach, that's it. You're no longer you're no longer leader of the party." So I think I think McConnell did this, and I, I think he wants out. I think he's done. Right? His wife is under investigation for working for Trump. Uh, you know, he is losing control of his own party. He's already old as hell. I mean, we've seen certain markings on his hand. His, aren't, his hands are purple some days. You know, there is there's cause for him to be like, you know what? I, I've done enough. I'm tired of the fight. You know, if I stay here, it's another two years of 50-50. There are 20 Republican seats up for grabs in 2022. It's not worth it. It's really not. And I could see him where if this passes, and maybe that's the best thing to come out of this, let this thing pass and Mitch will be gone. Let him go. The downside, though, is that Mitch, for all of his negatives, is the one stabilizing force in the Republican Party right now. Again, the devil you know. We don't know who would take over in the Senate. If Mitch McConnell evacuates, it won't be his replacement because they'll be brand new. It won't be Rand Paul because nobody really likes him. And it won't be Ted Cruz because nobody likes him. But also nobody likes Josh Hawley. So you suddenly have this, well, who's it going to be? It won't be Susan Collins. It won't be uh, Lisa Murkowski. You know, there are certain people you can say it definitely won't be. But we could really end up with someone not worse. I don't think anybody will be as blatantly in power grabby as Mitch, or at least not as effective at it. Instead, you'll probably end up with Marco Rubio, who will whine his way to the bank and try to, you know, finagle that into winning a Florida vote. 
but this is all being done quietly after the fact to solidify hold on power. If Georgia didn't flip blue, McConnell might have already resigned. I don't think he would have cared who takes his seat. Not in the long run. But this is being done to subvert democracy. One in a long list of things, and everybody's talking about you know, Georgia and a few other places. Uh, there are over 200 voter restriction bills currently in, you know, circulating through our state legislatures. In Georgia, for Pete's sake, they've got a they've got a, a bill saying that, you know, if people are waiting in long lines for voting, like hours upon hours, you get there at 7 a.m., but it's almost 2 p.m. before, you know, you even get close to the building, that it would be illegal for someone to provide them with food and water for free. And this used to be a thing. This is something that does happen. Uh, churches, especially, they would also, they would bust people to the lines, but they would also you know, put out like a little, uh, a food truck and they would go ahead and they, they, you know, hand everybody water bottles and everything else. Hey, thank you for voting. You know, here's a free sandwich kind of a deal. Um, you know, keep up the good fight. This is, you know, another one of those, but this one is falling under the radar right now. Um, it's not being covered nationally, at least not to the point I think it should be because this is a national story. It is Kentucky politics, but it is now national because Mitch McConnell is a national figure. So it's something we need to watch. Um, it's definitely anti-democratic in my opinion. Like I said, Kentucky has the power to do this and I have no problem with them exercising it. I just have a problem with how they're doing it and the, you know, real subversiveness about it. It's, it's such, it's a dick move. It really is. Um, which, you know, fits the author of it, Mitch McConnell. Ugh. So one of the big questions here in the United States is why it is so difficult to reform our justice system. Um, we have cash bail. A lot of people consider that a war against poverty. You know, crime of being poor, you can't afford to get out. And we have police that are brutal to all of us. Uh, I mean, it does happen disproportionately more to people of color, but it does happen. And it's, it's a lot of power that we grant these people and we'd like it back. Um, is a huge structural issue. And there's a huge question as to why is it so hard to do this? Why can't the voters just elect? who they want in these positions. And the answer is really very simple. Uh, we don't elect police officers and we do not elect uh, prison guards and we do not elect bail bondsmen. So if you have a new district attorney that you're a fan of and they say, I'm gonna end all these programs, they're gonna face some backlash. If you say you want to end cash bail, well, that means people like Dog the Bounty Hunter are going to be out of the job. If there's no bail, there's no bail bondsman. That is an industry. It is an industry that the United States has created out of thin air. You now have bail bondsmen. 
that is a very large group nationwide. So they have their own little like trade union thing. And if you say you are going to investigate police who abuse their power, who are corrupt, well, there's an entire union of police whose nomination or, you know, everything, it, it matters. If you're somebody running for office, it has never been seen as a negative when the police union endorses you. You always want the police union's endorsement. And also, if you say you want to reduce the number of people in prison, well, there is, of course, an entire prison industry that is going to come against you. All of these industries, well, two of the industries, the bail bondsmen and the prison guards, are for profit. The police union, however, is one of its own. Now, Unions in general are positive because they do look out for the worker against the little guy. Unfortunately, in this case, the police unions are looking out for the police and not the little guy. You would almost think it, it's kind of like what happened with the NRA. So quick history lesson way back when the NRA was not a batshit crazy. Uh, the NRA would go into your local schools and teach proper firearm safety. And they would endorse uh, firearm sporting events. And it was all about safety for them. And if you were unsafe, they were very quick to admonish you and to distance themselves from you. That, of course, is completely changed. But that's how it was. If you were against their brand, they, they kicked you out. And the police used to do something, or at least the police should. You would think, okay. It's my job to protect, hypothetically, a uh, hundred cops. Okay, well, if one of those cops is going around abusing his power, he makes the other 99 look pretty bad, so you would think, I want to get rid of that person. You know, expel them to save the other 99. So the fact that the police unions don't do that, usually, to me, is a huge tell that they are... It's It's not that they're expelling one to protect the 99 it's they have to protect the 99 from the one and that one is usually the whistleblower the one saying this is not correct it's easier for them to remove the whistleblower than it is for them to remove the bad cop so for me there's corruption all the way down now i bring this all up because when you have a da who runs on ending cash bail, shorter sentences, and investigating the police. You are going to have a lot of naysayers. And unfortunately, in this country, if you wear uniform, if you wear the blue, your say means a lot. Now, it might not during protests. During protests, yeah, backing the blue is a negative. You're, it's, it's pretty bad. But I've been a jury member in a trial that involved a criminal complaint. And they, the prosecution paraded in one police officer after another to give testimony. 
and every single one of them wore their uniform. They were extremely polite. They were, you know, very matter of fact. They were also allowed to review their notes, which I thought hilarious. But that is how the police system works. The, the prosecution, if they thought police don't matter, then they wouldn't have invited them in to speak. These are the prosecution's witnesses. The prosecution relies on the police to make their case. And not only that, it helps. It really does. It influences the jury. A lot of people instinctively follow authority. They see the uniform. They see the cop. Oh, why would they do that? I don't believe it. There must have been something else. You know, they want to give that person the benefit of the doubt. And also in this country, if you are the defendant and you are a certain shade of skin color, you are similarly biased in the opposite direction. You are automatically going to assume that they did it. And then it's up to the defense to persuade you otherwise. And I bring all this up because they have in Los Angeles recently elected a guy named George Gascon. And he used to be the district attorney of San Francisco. Uh, for reasons I couldn't figure out, he moved back, he moved to LA where he had served before as a police officer. He was a police officer and now he's district attorney. Uh, and during his inaugural address, he immediately ended the practice of trying minors as adults. This is a tactic frequently used in courtrooms where you have a minor who committed a crime and they decided we're going to try this person as an adult, which carries higher sentencing and also takes a potentially 15-year-old boy and puts him into an adult prison. That never ends well, ever. Um, you know, our prison system is pretty messed up and unfortunately you cannot trust that a 15-year-old boy going into an adult prison is going to come out okay or is not going to have trauma inflicted upon them. So he comes in and he says immediately, we're going to end this practice. You know, if the person's a minor, we're going to try them as a minor. If they're an adult, we'll try them as an adult. And personally, I have no problem with this. I think that's a great step forward because if... The law were meant to be, hey, you commit murder, it doesn't matter how old you are, then I would prefer the person I vote for, my legislator, making that decision for me. And that should be a law. Like, if you break a law, even on accident, you have the benefit, hopefully, of being able to, you know, Go to the internet, go to the library, whatever, or someone at least explain to you, well, this was the law and this is how you broke it and this is why you are facing seven to ten years. But all of a sudden now, if you're underage, you face a crapshoot. Well, normally you'd only be locked up for six months because you're a minor, but if you're an adult, it's two to three years. And it's entirely dependent on what the prosecution feels like. Now, if the DA came out and said... Every crime we can, we're going to try as an adult, period. That's just how we are. That's how I roll. 
vote for me and then they get elected that's one thing however the problem with this is the trying of minors versus adults is of course extremely biased just like the death penalty is more people of color die by the death penalty than commit crimes and more white people get away with it or at least you know they they sit in prison for the rest of their lives they get life imprisonment versus the death penalty the same thing is happening when it comes to trying minors as adults if you are a young white boy and you commit a crime you will most likely not be tried as an adult unless it is truly heinous meanwhile if you are a small black child and you commit a crime you are more likely to be tried as an adult and that to me is the reason why we should entirely get rid of this system there is clearly something going on so he says right away that's going to end and he says his prosecution will not seek the death penalty on anybody. So he's effectively ending the death penalty. He wants to end cash bail. Uh, so his his justification for this is very simple. He's like, well, look, when it comes to the bail process, why the hell is the prosecution even there? I mean, unless you really think this individual is a is a serious flight risk or you know is a, is is a harm to people outside of prison and that's why he needs to be kept until his trial because they honestly believe they're a harm you know why are you doing cash bail on a shoplifter he's like uh, why do you really believe the person's gonna run away he's like prosecution shouldn't even show up he's like the da's office shouldn't even be involved in that let the judge do their job that's what the judge is for the judge sits there and gets to decide this thing so he's and and by the way just because he wants to end cash bail as the da he can only not be there Right. Like I said, he's going to order his lawyers. Hey, just don't show up unless you honestly believe in this crap. So then the onus is entirely on the judge. You know, if the judge decides this shoplifter who stole a candy bar deserves to sit in prison for weeks or months waiting for their, you know, jury trial, then that's the judge's decision. But the prosecution is going to be completely removed from it. He's like, right now, there is a policy of the DA and the prosecution showing up to every single one of these bail hearings. And he's like, that's just, that's dumb. One, it's a waste of time and money. Uh, most people don't need to be locked up indefinitely. This is ridiculous. So he says, you know, unless unless they are, it is a violent crime, they have a honest to God reason to believe this person's going to flee. He's like, don't worry about it. Um, and of course, I personally don't like the idea of cash bail because there are way too many stories of an individual being held for just, a couple hundred bucks, but they're poor, they're homeless, so they don't have it. So they rack up fees because late payments, right? So this person's sitting in prison just accumulating debt. And I think that's just inherently inhumane. Um, the goal of a nation should be to lift people out of poverty, not find every reason to keep them down. And to me, that seems inherently like something to keep them down. So I'm all in favor of ending cash bail any way you can. Some people do point to the fact that just recently in this last November election, there was Proposition 25 in California that offered to end cash bail. That was just a proposition just to end it throughout the entire state. The state voted 56 percent in favor of keeping cash bail. Now, I bring up the specific number because the headlines are voters overwhelmingly support cash bail. Uh, and those are the headlines. And I'm like, no, 56% is not overwhelming. 70% is overwhelming. If you can get 70% of the populace to agree on anything, that is 
overwhelming. 56%? Ah, no, not really. If you told me we're going to pull 100 people and uh, we're going to ask them if they like cats or dogs, and 56 people in that group of 100 pick dogs, I'm not going to walk out and say, well, clearly the people overwhelmingly have chosen dogs over cats. No, it's six people. It's it's not it's not the same. Um, so I I disagree with the word overwhelming in that case, especially states. It's like, no, be quiet. Um, so you know, fifty six percent. And this is where I talk about the unions, the Bail Bondsman Trade Association, the American one, not the one local in California. Local bail bondsmen don't have the money to go out and defeat Proposition 25. But nationally, they do because that's how politics works. If you live in New York and you're a bail bondsman, the last thing you want is the one of the largest states in the union deciding to end your industry. So, of course, you're going to donate to a cause. You're going to put it into a pack. There are plenty of grifters out there who would love to take your money and make some commercials for you. <coughs> Excuse me. So that is, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that it's really what people want for the same reason that so in California, uh, almost all the time, there's a there's a proposition to end car insurance the way they know it. OK, car insurance is a huge issue in states like California, where there's so much congestion and everything else. Basically, the proposition says, hey, let's end car insurance and just say, hey, you get car insurance for you and all you need is liability. It covers your car, it covers you and it covers you, your passengers. Right. The person you hit. Their insurance covers them. There's no blame. There's no fault. Who cares who crashes into who? Your insurance covers you. Their insurance covers them. If they're not insured, then it's all on them. It doesn't affect you. If you're not insured, that's on you. You take care of it, but you don't have to worry about the other people. You only have to worry about yourself. This would vastly drop premiums down. The, the price of car insurance in California would plummet to basically a few bucks in comparison to what they're currently paying. So you would think something like that would pass. However, the caveat is, under this system, you lose the ability to sue. So if you have insurance or you don't have insurance and you crash into somebody or someone crashes into you, no matter who's at fault, no matter who's to blame, you are unable to hire a lawyer and go to court and sue that person for hitting you. You can still sue the insurance company if you feel the insurance company that represents you, you know, underpaid or screwed you over somehow or whatever monetary damages. But you can't sue the other person. So it clears up the courts because most of the cases in court these days are traffic disputes. It's people just suing. You lose the ability to sue. But everyone pays significantly less on car insurance. And you no longer have to care if the other person's insured. But it loses every year. Why? Well, because the insurance industry has a lot of money. And they would lose a lot of money if it passed. So anytime that shows up on the ballot, the insurance industry comes right in and pours millions upon millions of dollars in ad hours. And they they really hammer home, they, they're taking your rights away, your right to sue. Guess what? It's not a right. It's a privilege. The courts allow you to do it. 
period. On that same note, that's the same as voting. Voting is not a right. If it were a right, they couldn't take it away from you. Right, voting is a privilege. Until, you know, proven otherwise, voting is a privilege in this country. But anyway, so end of cash bail, we're good on. Uh, another thing he wants to do is reducing felony charges. Um, so there are these things called enhancements in the courts. You've probably heard them the most under hate crimes, right? It's one thing to kill a, a black man, but if you are a white man who kills a black man, there is a possibility that you could also be charged with a hate crime, which is an enhancement. So not only are you facing the, you know, 25 to 40 years in prison uh, or life imprisonment or even the death penalty if it's that grand, not only will you be facing all of that, you could face an additional charge on the hate crime basis as an enhancement. So a 10-year sentence, now th this could happen with any crime. So a five-year sentence could suddenly become a 10-year sentence. A 10-year sentence could become a 20-year sentence, all because of this. And in California, one of the biggest ones is not hate crimes, it's gang affiliation. So if the prosecution can prove you have an affiliation with a gang, that could tack on an extra 10 to 15 years of your crime. You know, this is all done in the, well, we want to stomp out gangs. Well, they haven't gone anywhere. They're still there. I would say it's been a, you know, unmitigated disaster as far as this enhancement is concerned, but whatever, it's still on the books. So here's the problem. Gang affiliation is pretty loose. How are you affiliated with a gang? Do you have to wear their colors? Do you have to commit crimes on their behalf? Do you even have to be friends with one? What if your brother's one? What if your brother, who lives in the same house as you, is a gang member? Or what if he used to be a gang member? What if 15 years ago, when you were a kid, you were in a gang, but have since then cleaned up your act and are now just unfortunately caught in the crosshairs of another prosecution that is unrelated to your gang you know, affiliation from 15 years ago. Those are the kinds of things that the state of California does routinely, especially in Los Angeles. They don't care. If you were ever affiliated with a gang, that's basically adding 15 years to any crime you've ever, you will ever commit for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter that you've renounced them. It doesn't matter that you don't talk to them anymore. It doesn't matter that you move to another part of the city where they are not at. You can just have that thrown on. And it is entirely up to the discretion of the prosecution because, of course, they have to prove that there is affiliation. And I just explained that some affiliation is pretty damn loose, but it doesn't matter. It still works. So gang affiliations, hate crimes. He says he's no longer seeking these enhancements. He's like, look, these don't work. First off, gangs are still here and all we're doing is overburdening prisons, which is also true. But again, if you're a prison guard and you're a member of the prisoners union or you own a prison, your job is not to rehabilitate people. Your job is to get as many prisoners as you can fit inside the walls as possible because you get paid a guaranteed check by the state per individual incarcerated in your prison. So it behooves you to lock them up for as long as possible. So you are a huge proponent of enhancements. Oh, this person's here for 25 years instead of 10? That's 25 years of a guaranteed check that person's going to receive. Thank you. Your tax dollars at work. So he's going to end those. 
And also one thing he's going to do that is uh, in direct contrast to his predecessor is he's going to open up what is known as these use of force cases against police. Um, and specifically, he's hired former federal prosecutor Lawrence Middleton as a special prosecutor to investigate officer-related shootings. So hiring a special prosecutor is kind of unique. Uh, in most cases, that generally means that you don't have any control over that person. Uh, this person is going to be hired for a minimum of four years with an option to extend if necessary. Um, and this person is going to investigate cops who shoot people, obviously, especially unarmed people, because that is an issue. Um, you know, I, I always hearken back to when I was growing up. It was like, look, the good guy in the movies was always the one saying, no, if you're if I ever pull a gun on you, you will be awake. You will be facing me and you will also be armed. That is the good guy code. You know, you don't shoot someone in the back, you don't shoot someone while they're asleep, and you certainly don't shoot somebody who is unarmed. That that was it. That was that was the rules. I didn't make them. That's how I grew up. And for me, it just seemed like, well, yeah, obviously, that means you're a good guy. So when I see videos, multiple videos of cops shooting unarmed people with their backs turned to them, running away, not running to commit another crime, which is what they usually say. Oh, well, I couldn't be sure he wasn't going to go out and rape someone right after that. And it's like, well, you could say that about anybody. I don't know what people do once they're outside of my field of vision. They could be up to all kinds of nonsense, but I'm not going to shoot them. And I'm certainly not going to shoot them several times center mass. So we now have this uh, special prosecutor who's going to go in, and he is uh, kind of famous in California history. He was one of the people who successfully um, tried uh, the police against uh, Rodney King, not obviously for you know use of force, but for violation of Rodney King's uh, individual rights. Um, he did successfully argue that. So he's got some history in the state, and he's been a federal prosecutor for decades. Um, so, you know, his credentials right now are above bar. Um, but what you've got instead, though, and this is where it gets tricky with all these DAs across the country and in California who are trying really hard to change the system, is unfortunately you have victims of crime. And these people care not one iota about the circumstances surrounding the perpetrator of violence against them. They just don't. It clouds their vision. It brings emotion into the situation. Emotion is not good. The judicial system should not have any emotion in it. It should be logical. Justice is different from revenge. Okay, anybody who's watched a Batman movie gets that, right? It's it's not supposed to be about revenge. It's supposed to be about justice. And the second it becomes revenge is the second we debase ourselves as human beings. Should not be vengeful. Should want justice, not vengeance. And unfortunately, these victim rights groups, they do exist. Um, I believe they are legit. I, I believe the people do they are speaking in good faith. They are emotionally affected by what has happened to them or a loved one. And they do believe the things that they are saying. The problem is, is they get backed and thrown into an echo chamber and amplified by prison unions, police unions, 
bail bonds trade associations, other politicians uh, looking to score points. You know, for every issue, there is an opposite issue you can fundraise off of. Congratulations. Welcome to the American electoral system. Um, so that's usually their thing. Um, the way I can tell that most of these people are arguing in not a good way is all their evidence is anecdotal. It's not statistical. Statistics are on the side of George Gascone and other DAs like him. Cash bail uh, puts people in prison who shouldn't be there. The death penalty is inherently racist. Uh, you know, trying minors as adults is also racist. Uh you know, uh, felony, felony charges uh, and enhancements. Enhancements don't do anything. Like the whole goal was we're going to end gangs. This is, this is a, you know, it's a preventative measure, right? People who join gangs won't, you know, will think about this. Hey, if you join a gang, you'll get even more time. In prison. Like they don't think about things like that. It doesn't work. And, and everything, you know, you, you've got all that going on and they are facing a ton of blowback. And statistically, it's true. Right. None of this stuff works as intended. None of it is working even 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 remotely well. So ending it makes financial sense. It makes sense on a human level. It makes sense on a political level like everybody's for it. But unfortunately, the other side has anecdotal evidence. You know, somebody could say, oh, well, my brother was murdered by a gang member and you want to let that person free. And it's hard to argue with that person. You can't diminish what they're saying. You, you, you can't say, no, it, it's not true and, and everything. You, you have to ask these people who are taking a very singular emotional incident and then try to project it across the spectrum of society, and that is impossible. You're just not going to reach some people. You know? Um... And, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. that. You know, if if violence were done against me, I would completely forgive myself for wanting violence to be done back to them. It's like, no, there should be payback. You know, there should be something done there. And and we all root for that in our TV shows even. You know, you see your favorite character, wrong is done to them. You're like, oh, I can't wait till that person gets theirs. That happens. And that's that's a normal part of human life. But we have to rise above and separate it from our own personal interests and the court. Even when the system fails, you have to trust it. The laws are on the books, usually for a reason. Anyway, uh, so that's today's show. Sorry it's been a while. I haven't been on. Uh, a lot of things going on here. We're hoping to get back at Adam here with a regular show. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, of course, you like, subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. And uh, you can reach us at recovery underscore from on Twitter and recoveryfrompolitics at gmail.com if you're interested in reaching out. Thanks a lot, and you guys have a great day.